Welcome to the Startup Help Desk, your source for answers to questions about building companies, starting companies, from a panel of experts, or at least people who call ourselves experts in building companies. We're all experienced founders, entrepreneurs, and investors having built companies, invested in hundreds, coached even more, and we've learned all the lessons the hard way to save you the time and answer your questions. My name is Sean Burns. I've been a founder for about 20 years of companies like Flurry and Outlier.ai. I am now coaching, investing, advising companies. It's countless how many I've worked with so far across a full range of industries. And I will share all my embarrassing stories with you to answer your questions. As usual, I'm joined by our illustrious hosts, Ash and Nick. Hi, everyone. My name's Ash Rust, and I'm a pre-seed investor based in San Francisco. I mostly invest in B2B companies based in the US, UK, and Canada through my fund, Sterling Road. I've also worked at other places like Trinity Ventures as an entrepreneur in residence and Bullpen Capital as an advisor. Before investing, I was an entrepreneur myself, most notably an early employee at the social media analysis company Clout, as well as the CEO and co-founder of SendHub. These days, I spend most of my time coaching founders and have helped more than a thousand startups over the years. Hey, this is Nick Melionis. I'm co-founder and CEO of a startup called Navi. We are the gateway to the innovation economy. We build tools that help folks learn innovation skills, solve mission-critical problems, and start companies. This is my second startup. I've supported hundreds of startups, founders, and innovators over the years. And as always, I'm excited to be back at it for this latest round of the Startup Help Desk. And the Startup Help Desk, as you all probably know, is answering questions that are asked by people just like you that have submitted questions to us about starting companies. If you have a question we would love to answer in a future episode, you can find us online at thestartuphelpdesk.com or on Twitter at thestartuphd. That's thestartuphelpdesk.com or the Startup HD on Twitter. So all the questions we'll answer today are from you, and they're all around the theme of money, specifically making money. Uh, the economy's gone a little bit south. Tech companies are finding the fundraising environment harder, so it's not surprising. Questions are about how do I make money, control my destiny, manage my money, all those sorts of fun things. And we will answer a whole load of questions about that in this episode. And speaking of which, let's get started. So Ash and Nick, our first question, and this one I get a lot, um, but it's a little bit vague, so take it where you will. Should I, I'm assuming I means lead or founder or CEO, prioritize growth or profitability? Well, I think it depends on whether or not you have cash on hand or not. Obviously, if you've got piles and piles of cash on hand, I think it doesn't make sense to focus on profitability. And actually, I'm seeing that false economy uh, logic come into play quite a bit right now. There's plenty of companies who perhaps were lucky on timing, raised money in the early part of 2022, or maybe they're just doing well and they've got a lot of revenue being generated, and they are seeking profitability perhaps unnecessarily uh, when they've got more than 12 months of runway, when perhaps they should be focused on growth. And the reason why that's important is because you've already paid the dilution. You've already given away 20, 30% of your company. So you might as well use that money to focus on growth, in my opinion, versus trying to build something that's maybe slower and steadier because uh, you could have done that perhaps without the money. Now, obviously, most companies are not in that good position, especially right now. So with dwindling cash balances, I would say going after profitability would be best. Most investors, including myself, have preached growth pretty much exclusively for years now. And that message has certainly changed 
you need to have a good plan to get to profitability if you don't have an incredible growth story, especially in 2023. A lot of investor sentiment has turned very negative. Now, the other thing that's going on, you see that across a a broad portfolio uh, as we have at Sterling Road, is the zombie trap, as I like to call it, where a company is almost profitable, but not really growing. So you're kind of fighting for profitability every month. Maybe you get it some months, maybe you don't others. And maybe founders are putting in a little bit of their own cash. And you have to ask yourself if that's going on for maybe six, 12 months, 18 months and beyond. Is that a good use of everyone's time? The company can stay alive, yes. But should you continue, especially if you've got you know talented people whose uh, you know efforts could go elsewhere? Nick, I want to hear your thoughts on this. But before that, quickly, Ash, you mentioned something I think is an important distinction, which is there's profitability, but there's different kinds of profitability, right? There's like break even, and then there's pretty profitable. But on the growth right, side, there's good you can businesses and businesses that aren't dying. <laughs> well, you can also you can grow and you can grow really well. Can you give us any sort of um, when from an investor's perspective, what is what is good growth versus like mediocre growth, and what is strong profitability? Like, give us some ranges in there so people can understand if they're making that choice, is it worth it? Yeah. So if you are Growing at 10% a month, that is very exciting growth for a venture capital investor in most cases. If you've been doing that consistently for three to six months, that's usually an indicator that you're ready to fundraise. And even in this environment, you'll garner attention. If you are focused on profitability, you do still want to be growing so you're not in that zombie trap. But the growth expectations can be much, much lower. So they might be in the 50 to 150% range in terms of what might be expected. So, you know, you might only have to grow 50% over the course of the year, maybe 2x over the course of the year to be a still a very exciting company to both new employees, potential investors coming in if you are also profitable or or, or you have a clear plan to get there because your margins are good. Cool beans, Nick, what do you think, man? Yeah, I like it. You know, I think part of this is a function. Well, hang on. Of... First of all, we have to ban the use of cool beans on all podcasts, not oh, just no. this podcast. <laughs> that is that is not a real word or phrase. Yeah, it's sure. groovy, groovy man, groovy. Oh god. <laughs> We're just trying to make sure right. that our SEO I I is working known, right. I should have known. I just let it go because it would only make it worse. But I tried. I reached out. I wanted to make peace. Let it be known. I know this is an SEO, a function of SEO right here, the cool beans and the groovy. That's for right, sure. That and pancake breakfast, we're going to win those terms. That's right. Well, we know with certainty that pancake breakfast is always going to work its way into our question sequence. So, uh, Ash, I like the way that you put this. I think part of this growth versus profitability discussion also hinges upon what stage you're at with your company. If you've seen some signals that you're at product market fit, then growth and profitability can mean something different. I would say that ultimately, the way I like to look at it is that profitability is always in season. And so growth is a result of doing several things right, and profitability makes it possible to do those things right. And so that being the case, if we wanted a blanket answer, my opinion is that most should focus on profitability. And just looking at profitability from the earliest instance. So let's just take a founder who's... Um, so you're saying st- profitability was in season in crypto when you were building well, a Bitwall? I, I, I would say that ultimately, uh, whether it was or was not, we are certainly going to say that it was in season. And 
founders, the founder successes. The story right. is this. That's right. Our story and is that I mean, probability. Hopefully, I mean, the historical record probably won't go back that far. Maybe they won't get AI to transcribe this. And when you're running for president, they'll never find it. That's right. Yeah, when we were when we were doing our pancake breakfast, handing out pancakes, we were whispering to everybody, saying, "We're profitable, by the way. We think." And then uh, <laughs> at the same time, they have one token of those money guns. I'm like, sure. Making yes. it rain, <laughs> money gun, making it rain. That's right. Get those pancakes. People were picking twenty dollars bills off their pancakes to try to eat them. It was so crazy. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the like we said, our story will certainly be that profitability is always in season, and if we. If you want to think about it just from the first instance of profitability for a company, obviously, if you're on this quest, ultimately, step one is just figuring out if you're solving the right problem for a customer. They need to get value from you, and you can be able to start generating some revenue from that. And so ultimately, profitability, I bring this up because in doing so, if you're able to charge for this and start generating some revenue and ultimately get your business to the point where you are profitable, it affords you the ability to focus on truly solving the right problem, ultimately building in those levers for growth and be able to do so without having the anxieties of how do you pay the bills, so to speak. And so ultimately, successes around profitability are fuel for growth and the other great aspects of your business. So count me in as a vote for profitability. I have a quick question for both of you. I'm hearing a lot for founders right now that want to get to profitability and they keep saying things like, I'm going to raise some money from investors to get to profitability. But it always strikes me as a very strange thing to say. Why would a venture investor invest in you just to get to profitability? They're investing for hyper growth. Do you guys hear people saying that? And and what do you think happens when they try to do that? Yes, but they're only going to be successful with their existing investors with that strategy. So yes, your existing investors might be willing to protect their investment. And you getting to profitability means sustainability, which hopefully means no more requests for cash. New investors obviously want to hear a growth story from the venture capital industry. And you're unlikely to be attractive to them if you're just preaching a story of profitability with very mild growth. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, let's in, in danger of only answering one question, let's keep going. What else is on our question queue for today, Nick? All right, let's do it. Question two. So this question from a founder is the following. I have an enterprise SaaS startup. How do I determine my unit economics? Sean, do you want to kick that off? Yeah, yeah, I'll jump in. It's funny how unit economics have all of a sudden become in, in vogue again. And if you're, if you're not sure, unit economics refer to are you making or losing money every time you sell whatever the unit of your business is? So if you're making shoes, do you make money or lose money each, each pair of shoes you sell? If you're an enterprise SaaS startup, do you make money or lose money in every subscription you sell? And there's two parts of that. There is how much it co- costs you to acquire the customer, so your customer acquisition cost. They, what it costs you to make the good, the cost of goods, and then how much you make from the customer through the sale, which is typically the lifetime value. So how much you make over the entire life of the customer. Now, if you make shoes, it's easy. Your cost of acquisition is however much it costs you to advertise to get that person, the cost of goods or how much it took to make the shoes, and the lifetime value is whatever the purchase price was of the shoes. For for enterprise software, a lot of founders aren't as used to thinking you need an economics. If you make shoes, you're used to this. This is the algebra of your business. E-commerce companies are good at this too. 
Enterprise SaaS, I have found over the last few years, haven't had to be very good at this because it was all focused on ARR growth. Can you grow your subscription revenue? Everything else didn't matter. Now people are starting to worry about that. So if you're an enterprise founder, CEO, leader, your unit economics are basically the difference between your customer acquisition cost and your lifetime value because you don't have any cost of goods in software, theoretically. Your cost of goods might include your, your support, your customer success, depending on that. But really, that, that's what it is. And so your lifetime value is how long you're going to keep a customer subscribed. And your customer acquisition cost is all the money you're spending to acquire customers divided up by how many customers it actually acquires. So if you're spending $1,000 a month and you acquire 10 customers, congratulations, it's $100 to acquire each of them. Now, it's a little bit harder than that. And investors typically don't want to wait and wait for a year or 12 months to figure out if you've retained this customer that long. So they typically think about payback periods, which is how long does it take you to pay back the cost of acquiring a customer? So if it costs me $100 to acquire a customer for my subscription, how many months does it take me to earn that $100 back? Is it one month? Is it two months? Is it three months? There are many enterprise software companies where the cost of acquisition is so high and their subscription is so low, it can take them a year, 18 months, some cases two years to earn them back. So typically enterprise companies don't talk about unit economics so much as their payback period. Because if your payback period is a month and every customer you acquire pays back the cost of acquiring them in a month, you're just making money off that customer for the rest of their engagement. Um, And so that's usually a better way to think about it. It can be hard thinking about your cost of acquisition versus your lifetime value. Usually the two levers you have are your retention. The better you retain customers, the longer their lifetime is, the higher the lifetime value is, the more profitable they get. And for your customer acquisition cost, if you're doing big scale enterprise sale, like self-service, it's usually just your cost of advertising and promotion. But if you actually have salespeople... It's your sales cycle length. How long does it take you to to close that customer in that sales cycle? If it's short, you're not spending as much time and therefore money. If it's longer, it's not as good. So what you want to focus on is how do I reduce my customer acquisition cost? How do I know what it is? I'll calculate it. What is your lifetime value, which is driven by your customer retention? And just make sure your customer acquisition cost is as less than your lifetime value as possible, specifically measured by that payback period. Ash, what did I miss? You work with lots of enterprise software companies. So I keep this really simple because I focus on really, really early stage companies, maybe a million ARR or less. And so mostly what I'm trying to avoid is entrepreneurs undercharging. So I just want to think about it first from the perspective of not what are our unit economics, but I want our margins to be 90% plus. So as you said, Sean, you know, think about what your cost of goods sold are across things like um, customer acquisition. So for uh, consumer businesses, that might be ads. For B2B businesses, that might be conferences or salespeople. Uh, for a, in deployment, so one time, maybe if you're an AI business, that might be the cost to build a model. And then the ongoing support. So maybe there's ongoing computational costs, hosting, the customer success team, data processing, all that kind of stuff. Figure out what all those costs are going to be over the course of about a year and then 10 exits. So I want to make sure that we are getting a really, really healthy margin over that annual wait, cost. Wait, wait, time out, again, time out. You don't want us to increase costs by 10x. You want to make sure the money we're making is 10x the cost, right? Yes, exactly. Sorry, okay, yes, good, that's good. absolutely true. Yeah. <laughs> you put all those costs together, add them up, whatever it's costing you, you 10x that number, your cost, and that's going to be what you charge. So that gives you a really healthy margin 
um, of you know 90% for your customers. Uh, and that's because most entrepreneurs you know chronically undercharge. And you know, if you really need to, don't worry about this, you can negotiate down if necessary. That makes sense. And so what um what are you think are the key ways, Ash, that people are figuring out? Because I often get this question oh, I don't spend any money on marketing and therefore I have no costs and therefore my customer acquisition cost is zero. But that's basically never true in my experience because there's all sorts of other things that go. It's like the cost of generating content. Do you have any good ways of helping founders, CEOs try to really figure out exactly what their customer acquisition cost really is? Well, look at where your leads are coming from and see if you fired people or turned off a particular channel that you're paying for, you could still generate the same number of leads. Usually, that's not going to be the case unless you're living entirely by referrals, which obviously is uh, the mark of a great business, but also incredibly rare, uh, especially in the modern era. So uh, yeah, in general, you want to look at where your leads are coming from and then assess how much that's uh, costing you. Yes, you could say that um, we're not spending any money on marketing, but only if you're 100% of your leads are just coming from founders who are sat in their bedroom, right? If that's not the case, then there's at least a phone bill and an office charge and all that kind of thing that you could perhaps account for in that cost. Fair enough. And everybody talks about Tesla as this great example of a company that doesn't spend any money on advertising. And I can't believe it because Tesla literally shot one of their cars into outer space with SpaceX. And people just assume that that was just free. That just happens. It's amazing the kind of games you can play if you're not careful. But it Right, all and costs if your money. CEO is spending a ton of time on Twitter or, on, <laughs> in, or in the press, then that's time that they, they're not spending on the product or hiring. So there's a cost to that. They've got to delegate out their responsibilities. Are we saying their time is worth $0 an hour? My guess is that's not what they're on payroll as. Well, to be fair, Ash, my time is worth zero dollars an hour. But for everybody else, <laughs> it's probably not a good, not a good assessment here. <laughs> oh, that's too good. I hey, wonder so how many what, tokens it's worth per hour, though. That's the real question. That's <laughs> right. We, we know it'll be variable. That's for sure. Hey, so one last question on this: When does it matter? So, at what point is it really important to make sure that you've got this stuff grasped? Is it on day one when you're starting your uh, you know, discovery of this opportunity? Is it later on? When do you know it's important to really start turning the switch and understanding these unit economics? That's a good question. I would say in the very early days, I don't think it matters that much because you're starting to find the demand. You don't really know what how much you can charge. But before you're going to turn up your growth engine or at the point at which you're planning for your growth engine, I do think you want to understand this very well because the last thing you want to do is spend a dollar to make 50 cents or spend a dollar to make 10 cents that's not a growth engine. That is an infinite black hole at which we will dump all your money. And it's so tempting to do that if you've got a big fat fundraising round you just closed. Mm. Less common mm. these days, but nevertheless, people are still raising those. And if you are, that it is not a license to just go and uh, spend for growth to make you feel better about the numbers. That's the danger. Mm. Agreed. The next Agreed. Well, making sure, let's get to our last question of the day. Ash, what else? What is the last question on our queue about money questions? So last question, how do I know if I'm making enough money? How do I know if I'm making enough money? Let's just call this the pancake index. When you're hosting your pancake breakfast, what kind of toppings are you putting on this thing? If you're just going maple syrup. (laughs) No. So of course, (laughs) the uh, the pancake index is not a proper way to understand how you're making enough money. Uh, But key thing here is, truthfully, you're likely not making enough money. 
And most of that's because the name of the game in startup land is, is to grow. And so at each stage of this journey, you want to understand, am I making enough money to ultimately continue to accelerate our growth towards that next stage? And so if you're at the design stinking, at the design thinking stage, you're likely not making any money. So you're not. No, the stinking stage is definitely something we need to talk about. <laughs> That's I right. Design stinking is our new t-shirt by far. <laughs> That's right. That comes before design thinking. No, we haven't really uh, spent an episode on this one just yet. So that'll be episode uh, 15 after all this. We're a family show, so we can't go into all the ways that this could potentially be applied. Oh, that's too good. Big picture. That's each one of these stages, your requirements to be able to sustain are different than your requirements to be able to grow and reach that next stage. So are you making enough money? Each stage is going to require something different. Uh, the answer is likely no until you're making enough money to be able to enter that next stage, at which point your growth goals change, your priorities change, et cetera. Uh, that's my take on it. Sean, what's your take? I, I think it's similar. I will reframe it as like it's a decision tree. Let's say you're not profitable today, which means you're not making enough money to cover your costs. Do you have a line to raise money? Meaning, are you growing fast enough to raise more money? If so, then it probably isn't a big concern. If you are not, then you need to get to profitability so you're not making enough money. Versus if you're already profitable and that's your plan is not to raise more money and to keep running on cash flows, how many capital reserves do you have? How long could you exist if you lose profitability. So overall, I think enough is a very dangerous word because it means different things. I know people that run, that are, are bootstrapped founders own 100% of their business that generates millions of years and it's not enough. And I know other people that are very happy running companies that are at a loss, but growing fast and, and they like the game of raising money and keeping on the growth train. So the big question for me typically comes down to what, what is your comfort zone? Are you the kind of person who likes to run a profitable business that is sound and stable, but not growing fast? Do you want to run a high growth business? And from there, the question becomes a lot easier to answer. Either you're pursuing VC growth and you need to have the growth or profitability, or you're just a cash flow business and how much money you make depends on how much money you want to make. Very cool. Well, that's all for money investing. We did have a bunch of last minute questions. So Ash and Nick, we're going to try something new. We're going to try lightning round questions. I'm going to throw some questions at you. I just need quick responses from you. I'll throw them at you. Do startups need to pay taxes? Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, very right. good. Yes. Yes, everyone. You do have to pay taxes. You have about you 12 months of, <laughs> of grace before uh, from when you start your business until you need to be fully registered and up to date with that, but be very careful. Um, this is not legal advice. And you make a mistake on that, you can go out of business. Agreed. Not legal advice. Yes. But I will say very helpful to work with people who know what they're doing. Bookkeepers, accountants, Agreed. find folks that can help you in a big way. Okay. Next question, lightning round. What bank should I use? I'm assuming that means as a founder of a company. SVB, First Republic, if you're based in Silicon Valley, the neobanks like Brex aren't that bad either by all accounts, especially if it's one that's startup focused. Uh, bank Banking is fairly vanilla, honestly, as long as you have access to the core features that you need, like online access, talking to someone in the event of an emergency, checks, et cetera, credit card, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, great response by Ash. That's perfect. Fair enough. Okay, one more. How do startups pay bills? Number one, definitely do it. And number two, 
<laughs> Definitely do Especially it. Especially your good podcast time. bill. You better pay the bill for this podcast. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. So, of course, you have a banking relationship. In doing so, you should receive a debit card. Perhaps you set up another type of payment card. And then the way you can pay your bills is, number one, make sure you're tracking it. So use a tool that allows you to be able to track what your expenses are. Uh, pay it. So use the payment card or tool of choice to pay the bill and then make sure that you are tracking it properly in your bookkeeping and accounting software. It'll make life a lot easier. Usually one owner at a startup for this kind of stuff early on. It's a great call. Fair enough. Excellent. Well, that wraps up our episode on money questions. I hope you've gotten the answers that you need to your money questions. Now, keep in mind, you're getting these answers from a free podcast that makes no money. So, hey, you know what? Your advice is worth what you pay for it sometimes. Just keep (laughs) that in mind. Ash and Nick, it's been great as always. Thank you. Thank you both. Absolute blast. Thanks, guys. See you soon. We will see you back here in the Startup Help Desk in the future. If you have a question, we would love to answer it. Find us online, thestartuphelpdesk.com or on Twitter at thestartuphd. Submit your questions for future episodes. But in the meantime, the Startup Desk is now closed. Good luck in building your business.